32nd chapter of the book of Genesis is our text today. Genesis chapter 32. In a moment, I'm going to read from verse 24. I suppose that there comes a time in every individual's life where he has to stand alone for God. Everything falls around, down around him, everybody falls away from him, and he stands alone with God, for God. But before one can stand alone for God, there must be a time when he meets alone with God. You can go anywhere in the world today, and you'll find people meeting alone with God. But I want you to go back with me 2,000 years in your mind, and we'll take a little trip across the Kidron Valley, the Kidron Brook, up to the beautiful Garden of Gethsemane. And there past sleeping disciples, past the inner circle, there neath the old olive trees is our Savior alone on his knees. In just a few hours, he will stand alone for God. And now he meets alone with God. Go back further in time than that, thousands of years prior to that, hundreds of years, to the little brook of Jabbok. Now the Jabbok is the brook that flows into the Jordan River, halfway between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. It really makes a crossroads there. Jacob is there alone with God. And the significance of Jabbok is, is that Jacob is at a crossroads in his own life. Let me remind you of the background of Jacob. His name means surplanter. That word means to trip up with cunning. He was by nature a conniver. He was a con artist, a huckster. And with his mother, he devised a plan to cheat his brother out of his blessing. And when his brother Esau was aware of what had happened, he is enraged, and so Jacob runs for his life. He goes to a far country named Mesopotamia, and there he meets up with a distant relative by the name of Laban. And Laban has beautiful daughters. Jacob falls in love with one, wants to marry her, and he gets a dose of his own medicine. Because on the night of his wedding, he discovers that Laban has given him the wrong daughter. He, he, he realizes that after seven years of labor, he's got now the bride he didn't choose. And so in order to get the one he wanted, he pledged seven more years of labor to get the wife he wanted. So for 14 years, he labored for his bride. And in that 14-year period, his father-in-law is working on him. Finally, he decides it's time to go home. He's had enough of this, probably cooled off now down at home, so he gets ready to leave. In spite of the way he is, he is greatly blessed of God. He has children, numbers of children, a large family, and he has possessions, hundreds of heads of cattle and flock. And so his entourage heads back home. 
His men come to tell him one night that Esau, his brother, is coming to meet him with 400 men, and Jacob is terrified. So he reaches into his bag of tricks, and the con artist pulls out a trick. He divides his entourage into two groups, the rationale being that at least half of us will survive. And he devises a little plan by which he'll send some cattle and some of his possessions to Esau, hoping that this smokescreen will protect him and buy him off. And so he gets with his family, this part of his group, and they camp by Jabok, and that night he can't sleep. And so he sends his family away. And now Jacob is alone with God at the crossroad of his life. And you and I have the privilege of parting the bushes and looking in on what happened. And here it is in verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the, the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated where he, while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I'll not let you go until you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is, that, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. And so Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip which is on the socket of the thigh because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. I suppose this morning that you have heard the call to meet with God alone. In every circumstance of life, I think there is a call to come to God. And every time the church bells ring, it's a call to meet with God alone. For every call to worship is a call to meet with God alone. I ask you this morning, what are the occasions of the call to meet with God alone? What causes a person to seek out God and to meet with Him and to encounter Him face to face? I think there are several from this story and other experiences. I think desperation calls us to meet with God alone. This man was at the point of losing everything. I mean, too many issues were at stake here. He stood to lose his possessions. All that he'd worked for 14 years to accomplish, he stands to lose all of it. And he represents that person who is about to lose everything. He goes in one day and his boss says, you're no longer employed, so he's out on the streets looking for a job. He represents that businessman who suddenly finds that he can't catch up with, with, his, with his debts and he's about to go bankrupt. He stands to lose everything. He's about to lose his family. And he represents that person to whom his spouse has said, I can't take this any longer, I'm leaving. 
I can't take your abuse. I can't take your neglect. I can't take your drunkenness. I'm out of here, and I'm taking the kids with me. He stands to lose his family. He stands to lose his own life. This is a matter of life and death for this man. He rep he's represented by the person who hears his doctor say, I need to give you some bad news. I've checked the x-ray. The word is not good. You may die. He stands to lose it all. He's desperate. I think destitution brings us to meet with God alone. For now he reaches into his bag of tricks and there's nothing in the bag. Heretofore he's able to buy his way out. Now nobody's buying what he has to sell. Heretofore he's able to talk his way out. Nobody's listening to anything he says. He's destitute. He has nothing. He's come to the end of himself. He represents that person you know and you understand who is at the end of himself. Nothing left. He's destitute. Let me tell you again the story of one of the most thrilling things that ever happened to me. I was doing a series of religious services in England, a little village called Mildenhall. And I was preaching primarily to airmen who were on the Mildenhall Air Base, one of the largest in the world. And I was staying in this little village of, called Mildenhall, and so in the morning I didn't have anything to do, so I just kind of roamed the streets looking for souvenirs. I've got them all over my office and all over my house. One morning I kind of took a side street, and I saw a sign that said the carpenter shop. I thought, well, it's a place where people make things for the house, and so I thought I'll go in there and might find some. When I went inside, it was a Christian bookstore and novelty shop, the carpenter's shop. It was just me and the owner in the place, and I was kind of browsing some of their books, and she came over to talk to me, and she could tell by my brogue I was not from England. She said, you sound like a Texan. I said, well, I'm close. She said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm preaching a series of revival services out at the Sedgefin Baptist Church. You know where that is? She said, of course I know where it is. When are the services? I'll come out there. And I told her. Then I asked her, what about her? I said, are you, what about your relationship to God? Obviously, you must be a Christian. You own this Christian bookstore. She said, let me tell you my story. She said, I was married to an American airman. We came to the States, and we moved to California. In California, she said, we drifted apart. I began to live a life of sin. I lost my family. She said, I have a 17-year-old son. I don't even know where he is. She said, or I have a, a young son who I don't even know where he is. At the age of 17, he joined a cult group. Haven't heard from him since. She said, my life got so miserable and destitute. I called the kids one day and I said, I'm going back to England. They said, we're not going with you. So she said, I caught a plane and I came back to home. This is my home. Without my family, without my husband, without a penny of money. She said, I lived in an apartment complex and I started to work at the air base as a civil servant. And, and she said, there was an old man who lived in the apartment complex, kept inviting me to church, inviting me to church. But she said, I was just hopping from one bed to the next, going from one party to the next. And one night I was out with this airman and we were at this dance and we were partying, thinking, talking about going, to, going home to his apartment. And she said, I said to him, I need to go powder my nose. So I went to the ladies' room to powder my nose and I left. I ran, she said. And I got to my house and I got down on my knees and I said, God, if you're real, if you're anywhere out there, I need you. I'm destitute. I have nothing left. And she said the next morning, 
Her face lit up like the sun. She said, the next morning when I went to work, I was transferred. She said, my boss said, I'm going to give you a promotion. I'm going to transfer you to another section in the, in the, in the, in the office. And she said, he, she, he transferred me to a new section into a new division, and I had a desk right beside what she called, quote, a fanatic. She said, this most charismatic, fanatic Christian I've ever been around, and he started to work on me. All he did was talk about Jesus. And one night she said, he invited me over to his house, and he and his wife were leading a Bible study. And she said, I went over to their house, and there with a group of Christians, destitute, without family, without friends, without hope, she said, I found Jesus Christ and was saved. Sometimes destitution calls us to meet with God alone. Sometimes a moment of decision comes. Now Jacob had to make a decision. He couldn't wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow might be too late. And he represents that person who confronts major, a major decision. He has no light upon his path, no clue as to what to do. He doesn't understand where to go from here. It may be that some of you have come this morning and you're confronted with a major decision. Some of you are confronted with a decision that will relate to your eternal destiny. And you can't wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow might be too late. Where did you ever get the idea that God owes you another sermon anyway? And sometimes we're called to face God alone in a moment of determination. Now watch this. Duncan Campbell was one of the men God used in the New Hebrides revival. He literally used this man to change a nation, a, a, a community. And so he became so popular as a public speaker. Duncan Campbell was going everywhere preaching. He was in great demand, and he neglected his time alone with God. He became irritable and arrogant and full of pride. He said, one morning I was shaving, getting ready to go to make another speech, another religious talk about how to live for God. And while I was shaving, he said, I was aware of my child. My little girl was standing beside me. He said, I kind of turned, and she looked up in my face and said, Daddy... Why isn't it with you and God like it used to be? He said it couldn't have hurt anymore if somebody had rammed me in the stomach with a fist. Hearing those words ringing in my ear, why isn't it with you and God like it used to be? I made there in the moment of determination. My life is going to be different from now on. Those are the occasions meeting God alone. Now, what is the agenda of such an encounter? I mean, if you met suddenly today face to face with God, what is the agenda of that kind of thing? I mean, what happens when that happens? Well, usually it begins with resistance. I'm here to tell you that meeting God face to face is not something we look forward to, especially if we're out of His will. And I don't know about you, but I'm here to testify that when I'm called to meeting God face to face, I'm not too excited about that. Was it C.S. Lewis who said, I go into the kingdom kicking and screaming all the way? There's a great deal of resistance to it. Can you imagine somebody saying to God, get out of my face, get off of my back, get out of my life? Can you imagine anybody saying that? Yes, you can imagine that if you understand what is the essence of a wrestling match. Now, the essence of a wrestling match is to determine who's going to be master. Now, I'm talking about real wrestling, like, like uh, Perry's, uh, your daughter goes with a, 
NCAA wrestling champ. I'm talking about that kind of wrestling. Not what you see on television where Hulk Hogan or Hulk Hogan or whatever his name is, gorgeous George, you know, they, they get up on the top strand, you know, and perch like a bird and land on each other. Now, that is not, that is not, you know, the essence of that is not to see who's going to pin, who's going to be the pinner or who's going to be the pinny. The essence of that is who's going to make the most money. That's who, that's a, the essence of a wrestling match is to determine who's going to pin and who's going to be pinned, and that is not something we look forward to. I'm here to testify this morning it's not much fun to come to the place where you, de- you decide I'm going to let him be the master of my life and take control of it. Now it's obvious that this theophany, now this person that was wrestling with Jacob was really the pre-incarnate Jesus. That's a theophany. That was Jesus in the Old Testament. It's obvious that he could have whipped Jacob in a moment. In fact, he touched his thigh. He rendered him powerless because anybody knows that you get your power from your hips. When you go to swing that baseball, listen to this, guys, give a little baseball instruction. When you, when you go to swing that baseball, better get your hips into it. I'm told that a way to hit a golf ball 300 yards straight down the middle, you've got to get your hips out of the way. And I know that those pulling guards of the Dallas Cowboys, the reason why they have a derriere that wide is because they get their power from their hips. Now, he rendered him powerless, but he didn't pin him. Now, the question I have, and you probably have asked, is why didn't he just go ahead and smash him to the canvas and put his foot on his throat and say, I'm taking from you what is rightfully mine, because God doesn't work that way. The way God works is is that he strives with us and he wrestles with us until we're willing to give it to him voluntarily. And I tell you, he'll wrestle with you until the day you die, until you give it to him voluntarily. You have your plans and your dreams and you have your will and your way and he could snatch that from you in a moment, but he's more merciful than that. What he does is he wrestles with you until you're able to say, Lord, here are all my plans, here are all my dreams, here are all, here's all of my will. And it goes from resistance to revelation. Now, all of a sudden, Jacob woke up as to whom he was wrestling with. I mean, this is God I'm wrestling with. And he had this, all of a sudden, he had this revelation. He discovered what's going on here. And the history of your life is that kind of thing. And when he discovered who he was wrestling with, he discovered who he was. He asked for God's name because God, but, but because to, to know a person's name is to know that person intimately. But God said, I want to know your name. And he told him his name, Jacob. Boom. I think in a flash, as he wrestled with God Almighty, for the first time he realized who Jacob was. That name means supplanter, it means conniver, I'm a conniver, I'm a phony, I'm a fake, I'm a farce, I'm a huckster, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an imposter. Let me tell you, hear me now, every circumstance of your life has this purpose, to bring you to the reality of who you are and who He is. Revelation. And from resistance to revelation 
came request. He made two requests. He made a request that God would bless him. Now we say, God bless you, and you know, we use that term, that's a cliche for us. We throw that, we just let that roll off our lips. But, but to bless somebody in the Old Testament in biblical sense was much different. To bless somebody, when God blessed somebody, it meant that he was able as a sovereign, in a sovereign act, to do something more for one than man could do for himself. Now watch how that fits in. Jacob had been the guy who was taking care of Jacob. I mean, this guy had all kinds of tricks. He had a way of slipping out of every noose. But in the destitution and the desperation of his life, he came to a place where something had to happen for him that he couldn't make happen. In other words, he was praying for God to do for him what he could not do for himself. What a moment of time that is when a person comes to the reality that what he needs, he cannot supply. There are a lot of antidotes that have come out of the Vietnam era and prisoners of war in Vietnam and all that kind of stuff. We tell them over and over. I read one not long ago that happened as from in a, in a prisoner of war camp in Vietnam. I'm taking this off because I am aware of time. You don't think I am, but I am. It happened in a prisoner of war camp. There was a guy that survived a prisoner of, as a prisoner of war in Vietnam, and not only did he survive, but he was relatively healthy. I mean, he was not emaciated, and he was not um, malnourished. As a matter of fact, some people uh, were really amazed at how healthy he was. And so they asked him, what do you think is the secret that you survived these years as a prisoner of war, just eating slop, bread and water, and you weren't, and you're relatively healthy? This is what he said. I asked God to make that bread and water, meat and potatoes for me. I asked God to do something for me I couldn't do for myself. He asked for a blessing. And he asked for, as soon as I check my notes, I'll tell you what the second thing he asked for. He asked that he might know the Lord, know God. He said, what is your name? I, I want to know you. Listen to me. Jacob had come to the realization that you can know God's provision and not know God. He'd come to the realization that you can know the gift and never know the giver. That you can know deliverance from your enemy and never know the deliverer. And all of a sudden, these things that were so important to Jacob, like possessions and blessings and all that kind of stuff, he came to a point that all of that was not that important any longer. He wanted to know God. I want to know you. Some of you this morning have been praying for the gift. You need the giver. Some of you have been praying for deliverance. You need to know the deliverer. And some of you have been praying for escape. 
You need the word of the one who provides the way of escape because you can know the provision and never know the provider. Now, what are the results of meeting alone with God? First result was that he got a new name. Now, we give, we, we give names. I, I talked to the ladies' uh, group the other day about the fact that we give out names. I don't know where you got your name, but I got my name from my aunt, Geraldine. That's a blessing. <laughs> Talk about mental cruelty. We give out names, and, 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 but back in those days, they gave out names that represented a prayer request, a need, a desire. Sometimes they gave names that related to historical character, that is, like Jacob, the implant, supplanter. But he got a new name. And his name meant wrestles with God. So that every time after that crossroads at Jabok, he heard his name, it reminded him that he had met God alone. It was just a reminder of his new nature. And he came out of that experience with a limp. Now watch this. You can't meet with God alone and walk the same way any longer. And if the biblical idea that's found in the, way, in the word walk means manner of life or style of life, I'm here to tell you, you can't meet with God face to face and ever walk the same way again. And I think there's a kind of a fun thing that folks do. And that's to say, well, if I believe like you Baptists, I'd go down there and get saved and sin all I wanted to. My answer is, I already sin more than I want to. You get a new nature. You get a new walk. Your life has changed. You can't be the same any longer. He came out of there with a limp. Now, this is nothing new. As a matter of fact, listen to what Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, writing near the second century said. Listen to this. The tree is known by its fruit. Similarly, those who profess to be Christ will re recognize, be recognized by their actions. For what matters is not a momentary act of professing, but being persistently motivated by faith. Listen to what Martin Luther said about it. This guy who emphasized grace through faith and not works. When we have thus taught faith in Christ, then do we teach also good works? Because thou hast laid hold upon Christ by faith, through whom thou art made righteous, begin now to work well. Love God and thy neighbor. Call upon God. Give thanks unto him. Praise him. Confess him. Do good to thy neighbor and serve him. Fulfill thine office. These are good works indeed which flow out of this faith. This is what Charles Spurgeon said about it. Another proof of the conquest of a soul for Christ will be found in a real change of life. If a man does not live differently from what he did before, both at home and abroad, his repentance needs to be repented of. I love it. And his conversion is a fiction. Not only action and language, but spirit and temper must be changed. There must be a harmony between life and profession. A Christian professes to renounce sin, and if he does not do so, his very name is an imposter. I uh, picked up something not long ago. I've got time to do this. I like the way you listen, but I don't like the way you beat on your watch and look at it. Now, don't do that. Look at it. I picked up a deal the other day told about this guy named Ferdinand DeMaro, Jr. 
He was arrested a few weeks ago for the twelfth time. He's better known as the great imposter. <laughs> Two years from now, we're going to get those fixed. The great imposter. He was a high school dropout without credentials or qualifications. He served at various times as the vice president of a, of a university. Guy was a high school dropout. He was vice president of the university, a, a psychology professor, and a Trappist monk. He was for a time assistant warden of a Texas prison. Can you believe that? And he worked as an auditor of a bank, and he flew commercial airlines for two months. He served as an officer in the Canadian Navy. He was a surgeon who, who took out people's tonsils, amputated limbs, and once saved a man's life by taking a bullet out of his heart, and the only knowledge he had was what he'd read in a book. He was a teacher of a high school and was named Teacher of the Year. Now that gets worse, doesn't it? He was able to find employment in so many roles because he could falsify evidence, for, forge identity papers, fake his way through interviews and exams. Once in Georgia, when the police were preparing to arrest him, he showed up with a badge and arrest warrant. And he went with the, with the, he went with the guys to arrest himself. Can, can you believe it? Cause a great imposter. I know some great imposters. There are people who say, I met with God, and they walk with no limp to give identity of it. They're the great imposters. He came out with a new name, and he came out with a new knowledge. Watch this. Somebody said, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. And all of a sudden, he begins to see things as he was. A new knowledge. I've met God face to face. The only sad part about this is I wish it had happened a lot sooner. Why? Because of his sons. He had all these sons who knew him longer as Jacob than they knew him as Israel. I wish he'd have done it a lot sooner because he had all these sons who mimicked and modeled Jacob. You know who they were, don't you? They're the guys that messed Joseph's life up. And they all wound up down in Egypt. And even Jacob wound up down there. Can you imagine one day some grandsons climbing up in old Jacob, Israel's lap, and they say, Grandpa, tell us again that story about how you got that limp. Tell us again that story about how you got that limp. And old Israel, with a tear on his face, said, Oh, children, that limp is to remind me that there was a night when I met God alone. Every circumstance of your life is a call to meet God alone. And when you heard those church bells ring this morning, and when you heard that organ play the first note, God was calling you to meet Him face to face. Let's pray.
Our Father, at the crossroads of our life, we stand. Some of us with decisions, some of us destitute, some of us desperate, all of us determined that our lives need to be different. Our way needs to be different. Our walk needs to be different. Touch our life today at the point of our power. Render us helpless that you can help us. Render us weak in order that you might in us be strong. For I pray in Jesus' name as I ask you to do for us what we've not been able to do for ourselves. Amen. In the spirit of prayer, look here. I'm going to ask you this morning if you've never come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You've never met Him face to face. You've never turned from your life to His, from your way to His, from your faith in whatever to to Him and Him alone in faith. I want to ask you to get up out of your seat. You've been called to that moment. And perhaps you need to come this morning to commit your life to Christ and to His church, to the disciplines of a church fellowship. Get up out of your seat and come. Or if you've drifted away from God, you've handled your business on your own and you've messed it up, there's another chance for you. Get up and come. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.